Hello and welcome to this special extra edition of On Geopolitics, the podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Suzanne Rain. I don't have Ali Ansari with me today, but I'm joined instead by Professor Bill Hurst, the Deputy Director at the Centre for Geopolitics. Uh, and Bill has been very much in the news for the last week because he is an expert on China and we've had protests in China, which has got everybody very excited, trying to work out what this means, what the implications are. And so we thought, let's ask Bill to tell us directly. Bill, um, I think you you forecast, you've been on the podcast a few times and you forecast during those conversations that there was going to be a problem about the COVID lockdowns in China because sooner or later there was going to be a tension about opening up. And we have had that conversation is this basically what's happened now? It's at least a first round or a precursor to that. So we haven't yet seen in China the full conversation about what reopening will look like or could look like. I don't think reopening is yet really a possibility. If we go back just one month to the 20th Party Congress, right? Xi Jinping in his opening speech and then again in the work report and again in some other statements that came out from the Congress, uh, called for, as he put it, a people's war, total war, complete mobilization against the virus. Uh, he also talked about the need for protracted and arduous struggle to eliminate COVID completely and that nothing short of that would be acceptable. Um, and went on to emphasize if we're not advancing, then we're retreating and persistence is victory. So from that sort of rhetoric to climb down and say, we'll live with the virus uh, or rescind restrictions is probably not feasible. But there is still a great deal of kind of popular demand to relax some of the zero COVID measures. Uh, remember that people throughout China have been living under different forms of lockdown and different gradations of restrictions for almost three years compared with just a few months at a time uh, in the UK or in most other countries in the world when we experienced this. I mean, we experienced it a few times, but usually not for very long and also not of the severity uh, that has been present in some places in China. And so what happened last week on Thursday, the 24th, uh, is that there was a fire in a tower block of flats in uh, Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Uh, and the videos that have spread online of the fire appear to show that the firefighters had difficulty approaching the building due to barricades and uh, fencing and other lockdown measures. The building was under lockdown. And they also appear to show people in the building screaming, uh, begging for doors to be opened and to be let out because they couldn't escape the fire. Uh, they were sealed in the building by it, it so seems. Uh, that's been disputed. The government denies that that was actually the case. Um, there's some dispute around that. It isn't absolutely clear that they couldn't get out, but it looks that way in the videos I've seen. Uh, and to watch that is difficult, and I think a lot of people saw that. And this isn't the only time something like this has happened. It's been a sort of persistent theme over and over again over about the last 18 months uh, that it, the incidents like this are happening. And then uh, this one seems to have really struck a nerve with a lot of people who began to 
hold protests around that, uh, vigils to remember the people who died. At least 10 people died in the building. Uh, and, and so people have had vigils to remember those who died. Um, other protests against harsh lockdown uh, and calling for sort of a relaxation of, of some of these control measures. Those then spiraled into something a bit larger over the last weekend, uh, the 26th and 27th of November. Bill, so uh, this is a, this is a micro question about that fire in Urumqi. But um, obviously Urumqi is capital of Xinjiang. It's, it's the Uyghur province, or it was. Yeah. I'm assuming that the people who were in that tower block that died in the fire were not Uyghur, but were Han Chinese. Is, it, does that make a difference? Is that true? Does, that, does it make a difference to how people respond to it? It, it might make a difference. And honestly, I don't know off the top of my head uh, who exactly the people were that died. What I can say is that the people in the video who you can hear screaming are speaking Chinese. Uh, so I don't, I, I, there's no clear image of them to be able to see who it is. Uh, and I haven't seen a list of names. I'm, I'm sure there is somewhere a list of names circulating of exactly who died. I have seen one or two news reports talking about Uyghurs in Xinjiang who are upset about the fire and upset about specific lockdown measures in their communities. But I, I don't actually know if the people who died in the fire were Uyghurs or not, uh, or another ethnic minority indeed. Uh, it could have been Kazakhs or Uzbeks or something, or, or uh, Han. I think in the rest of China, there probably is greater resonance uh, around this, if people believe that those who died were Han, mm. if anything. Yeah, because we're not seeing, so in my limited understanding of this, we're not seeing, so, uh, let me ask this question properly. You put out a, a tweet, uh, which got an awful lot of retweets, which, which explained why these protests are different. And your explanation was because it brought together so many different um, kinds of um, parts of society, people with, with different grievances in different ways. I'm not aware, but you may contradict me, that, that one of those is, is ethnic or regional grievances versus the centre. But, but would you like now <laughs> to explain in more detail what, what that thread said? Because I think it was an observation that shows the texture of, of the issue about these protests. Sure. I think that a lot of the media coverage and a lot of reporting around these protests have tried to stress that protests in China are rare or that this is an aberration and I think one of the things I was trying to emphasize is that protests in China are not rare. We actually see hundreds of protests all over China every single day, and we have for many, many years. Um, China is actually an incredibly contentious society. Um, I don't know if it's easy to quantify this, but I would probably say, at least impressionistically, that uh, one sees a lot more protests uh, on a per capita or per locality basis in China than in the UK. Um, and on a daily basis, at least, uh, not necessarily at, at key moments. But so one of the facts, facets of protest in China is that it tends to be compartmentalized and it tends to be compartmentalized locally or regionally, uh, and separated out, you know, by, by work unit or factory, by neighborhood, certainly by city, uh, or, or region. 
Another is that we see these kind of distinct strands or repertoires of contention among different groups. So we have for a long time an undercurrent of labor protest in Chinese society um, and a couple different varieties of labor protest actually. Then another of kind of farmers protests and villagers mobilization against uh, illicit levies or abuses and corruption by local officials uh, or other kinds of issues in the, in the village. Then we have separate from that student protests um, that break out from time to time on, on university campuses. Then we have what I've called kind of urban governance protest. And that, that's a, a not really great shorthand, uh, essentially for protests that are motivated by a desire to improve the delivery of public goods or services, right? People who are upset that, you know, the, the uh, local services aren't working or they can't get access to certain kinds of benefits or local government isn't, isn't doing its job very well. Uh, in urban areas, these also happen in rural areas, actually, um, but not in this round. So we could sort of separate out two strands of that. And then separate from those, we do see from time to time ethnic or religious or minority protests, um, notably by Tibetans and by Uyghurs, but also by other ethnic minorities um, around different parts of China at different times. Now, one thing that's interesting is that protests by minorities or in support of grievances about discrimination or uh, other negative experiences of ethnic minorities or religious minorities in Chinese society tend to be suppressed more quickly and more harshly than other kinds of protest. Um, we've seen that pretty solidly for at least the last 15 years, I would say even longer than that. And that has not emerged, at least not from what I've been able to see uh, in the current round of protests. The other thing we haven't seen really is a great deal of rural mobilization around these issues. Um, not that rural people aren't upset about lockdowns uh, or that none of this affects rural areas. I think it affects rural uh, areas and populations uh, profoundly, in fact, but they haven't been protesting uh, for whatever reason, or they haven't really been part of this wave. And what has happened is that this kind of master framing of anti-lockdown or frustration with zero COVID brought together uh, students, workers, and people upset about urban governance issues uh, in, a, in a very wouldn't say coordinated, but a, a very closely affiliated way, at least for a moment. And it also drew in a few people that we see quite seldom, but also exist uh, in China who are sort of more systemic critics of, of the system or of the party or of the regime. And so for at least a few days, um, there were a lot of protesters in many different cities who came out first and foremost around these very specific and concrete grievances related to urban governance, and then sort of began to mobilize around more abstract, more general claims, uh, and at times even sort of overall critiques of the CCP and of Xi Jinping himself. Thank you. That's really helpful framing of it. What you're describing with this sort of um, possibly temporary alliance of students and workers and urban governments, it, do, is it, because obviously China's 
enormous geographically. It appears to have been quite widespread geographically. Is it leaderless? Is it spontaneous? Is it all driven by social media and everybody seeing the World Cup and thinking, hang on, we're locked up and everybody else seems to be out and about? You know, that That's the narrative that I think is the explanation that's being given to us over here. I mean, we were also talking, Ali and I were talking about Iran and the the sort of spectacle there of of a leaderless uprising and and how it how it happens like that. What's your narrative of of how it spread and how it was galvanized? Well, I, I do think it's basically leaderless, and I think you know for many years I've been arguing with people about this because there's an assumption in a lot of the literature on social movements and contentious politics that we see what are often called social movement entrepreneurs who then establish movement organizations and coordinate uh, framing and uh, articulation of claims and and draw consciously on what are often referred to as mobilizing structures uh, to bring people together and get them to turn out uh, to protest. And my argument is essentially that in many authoritarian contexts, including in China, that just isn't feasible. If you try to do that, you will be suppressed fairly uh, certainly. Right? There's a very high degree of, of uh, surveillance and repression uh, of that kind of activity. And that sort of organized, orchestrated uh, protest is more threatening in the eyes of the regime. And so what we usually see are things that I've called sort of structural frames where there's something that for whatever reason resonates in a powerful way among a set of core constituencies and isn't deployed consciously or with any agency by a leader or by an organization that helps to bring people out to protest. The other thing on top of that is that the mobilizing structures usually are not social movement organizations or as has often been pointed out in contexts as diverse as the American South or Poland, uh, churches and church groups, something that's usually not uh, the the structures that mobilize people in China. It's actually usually neighbors, uh, at least from what I've seen. So it's in in villages, it can be old people's associations. It can be um, other kinds of groups. It can also just be people who happen to live in the same village. In cities, it's very, very often neighbors uh, who live in the same building or in the same compound. Uh, a lot of urban housing in China is organized into uh, what in Chinese are called xiaoqu. They're sort of little districts, micro-districts. Um, they could be called a little bit like sort of Soviet urban planning, but even at a more micro level, uh, sort of a, a small compound of, of high-rise buildings with a wall around it in which a, a large number of people would live, several thousand people uh, or so, uh, would live inside this this walled community. And there might be shops inside or a restaurant or something like this. You certainly are free to come and go. It's not sealed off, although it can be, as they have been during lockdown in many cases. Um, so it's very convenient for social control. But it also forms a very tight-knit urban community in a way we don't usually see in cities in Europe or North America, that most people do know their neighbors and do see their neighbors regularly within the smaller community. 
Uh, and a lot of social services and public goods are provided through that community. And so people who live together in those sort of little neighborhoods are usually the people that will get together to protest. And so sometimes those little neighborhoods are all under the jurisdiction of a particular state-owned enterprise or urban work unit, in which case we see mobilization inside that work unit rather than across work units. In some cities, um, people from multiple different work units will live in the same community, in which case then it's actually easier to get mobilization across work units. So that's what we see with workers' protests a lot coming up. What we saw here is also, I think, mostly people mobilizing in these neighborhood networks, um, but all at the same time in many different places. And I don't know how much of this was driven by social media or not. Um, one of the state responses has been to try to restrict social media and, and uh, online messaging apps even more than they already are. And there's been all kinds of interesting strategies around that. Uh, you know, if you search for places where protests are happening, you get all kinds of you know, inappropriate content, uh, apparently. Yes, uh, I've seen that. Oh, I've heard yeah. I've heard it. Yeah, I haven't actually tested it, but but I've I've heard this from multiple people that that's what happens if if you try to search for things. Other things get blocked. Mm. Um, so one of the more clever things I've seen is people uh, sending an image of a chess game in which the white pawn all the way at the left has moved two spaces on the first move, because that is a move to the square A4 um, on the board, which then indicates that. You know, you're going to hold up the blank piece of A4 paper as, as part of the, the anti-censorship protest that's been going on. So, you know, the, people are finding all kinds of creative ways around this. I've talked to a number of people uh, informally who definitely have heard about things because they brought it up to me. Um, mm -hmm. Various aspects of, of protests going on. Um, so think things are spreading. Um both inside China and outside, right? So if, if you speak to people outside of China who have family or, or friends in China, um, they can confirm also that, that people are aware of what's going on to a greater degree, I think, than we might appreciate or than the state wants. But I don't think they're coordinating. I don't think people in City A are calling up people in City B and planning how they're going to protest. Um, what is pretty clear, though, I think, is that the state is not responding in direct, harsh ways. What they're trying to do is sort of hold back uh, and move more gradually. So what we're seeing is something closer to Hong Kong in 2019, 2020 than Beijing in 1989, um, at least for the time being. So, Bill, I'm going to interrupt you here because I've got because I, I want to come on to the state response. Uh, but I've got a really quick question about um, wall communities, and then and then the flip side, which is the migrant workforce. Um, I think the wall communities point that you're making is is fascinating, actually, because almost that's a a sort of terrible social experiment of locking people in a space together for, as you say, three years, and then. And then obviously that's going to end up being a, a tight-knit community with more internal confidence within it about what they want. And, and, and so that, that, is, that is a fascinating insight for me. The thing that we used to always see 
before um, COVID on China was this tremendous movement of people, particularly from the cities, uh, the, the country to the cities. And at certain times of the year, there's always the stories because they couldn't all fit on the trains because the weather was bad or whatever. And, and presumably all of that movement has just stopped, has it? I mean, did they all get stuck somewhere in the wrong place? Well, I mean, there there were some stories early on about people being stuck either in the city or in the countryside in China, similar to what actually happened in India uh, when they first didn't let anyone leave the city and then they sent everyone back out of the city to the countryside just in time to bring COVID to all the villages in India. Uh, in China, there were some stories like that, but nothing as spectacular, in part because the outbreak never got as out of control in China as it did in India uh, during the Delta wave there. But no, they haven't all gone back. There's a lot of them still in the city. And what's very interesting is if you ask around and try to figure out what are they doing? Because a lot of migrant workers usually would work in service and retail sectors or construction or other things that have been mostly shut down. The one job that seems easily available uh, to many people is actually the what what is often referred to sort of derisively in Chinese as as the 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 big whitey character the the person in the hazmat suit da bai um, is is what they're called so these, these uh, you know sort of ubiquitous people in the white hazmat suits who come around and you know enforce lockdown or or uh, clean up places with disinfectant spray uh, all over or, or uh, give COVID tests, in fact. You know, a lot of the people who are sort of sitting in those shipping container booths on the street are swabbing everybody's uh, mouth as they wait in the, in the line for that um, are actually migrant workers, um, as are many of the people who sort of knock on the door and say, you've got to go to quarantine. And I think that actually l- lends an additional level of resentment uh, for some people, I mean, I not recently have I heard this, but some months ago, um, I did hear a lot of people complaining, especially especially vociferously, that you know they were afraid of being dragged away to a quarantine center by a couple of migrant workers, right, rather than by you know kind of medical authorities who they would trust, um, that they were actually going to be, in their view, detained and abused by people who they viewed as much lower in the social hierarchy than, than they were. Um, and that was particularly uh, an affront to their their pride and dignity, they thought. Gosh, Bill, so I mean, this, this is why it's so, so good to talk to you, because you, as you say, this is so multi-layered and such a complex country and society. So really understanding what's happening. So let's turn now to the response. And you did you did say at the very beginning, you know, there's there's three possible courses of you know what's going to happen next, and the one that you put as most likely was essentially that these protests would fizzle out in the context of um, the recently held Congress of of the CCP, which which sort of majored on persistence and security. I think what's played out during the, the sort of second half of this week does bear out. Your analysis of the first half of this week does it in the sense that the the state has responded in a in a with a slight flex in order to maintain 
the control of well i i think it's it's way too early to jump to conclusions we don't want to assume that this is over or this is definitely moving in one direction or another direction uh things could very well change even before this podcast is published but uh so far it does appear that a couple of things are true. First of all, that the holding together these disparate strands of contention under a kind of umbrella frame of anti-lockdown uh, claims is is really difficult, and it's even more difficult without an organization, right? Because there's no organization, there are no leaders, there's no one to keep reminding people to sort of stay on message and stay on track. Um, there's a fair bit of drift. Right. And there's drift towards, you know, the, the A4 protests about censorship. There's drift towards, you know, some people calling for Xi Jinping or the Communist Party to step down or, or be deposed. Uh, there's drift towards other people who want to stick with just talking about the fire and lighting candles and, and the uh, commemorating those who died. And so I think there's a risk, which we've seen borne out in at least some places, of some of the protesters beginning to feel that they're not really represented in the ongoing movement. That, oh, I, maybe I shouldn't be here. This isn't really what I was upset about. You know, I didn't ever have this issue. I don't really want to be associated with these claims. Um, and, and so they just decide to stop. Um, the other thing that I think is wrapped up in that is people get tired of protesting. Protesting is difficult. Um, when you're doing it, you can't be doing something else. Um, you know, so there's an opportunity cost to turning out and protesting day after day. And so I think, uh, you know, people may just be getting tired or they may be starting to feel that they're not likely to see a gain from this. In terms of the state's response, I think their first response was essentially just to wait to see if the different strands would begin to come undone and if we might just go back to a normal kind of level of, of contention uh, where we see workers protesting in factories and students protesting on campus and, you know, some other people protesting in their neighborhoods about urban services. And, and, and that's kind of manageable from, from the state's point of view. And it, it looks like that's perhaps where things have been trending in the last couple of days. But the other thing the state has done is they've been very subtle about turning up the pressure just a bit. So instead of going for a kind of sharp or brute force, blunt repression, what they've tried to do is just move the dial a little bit each day in a direction that indicates that the costs are perhaps increasing for protesters. So they put up these blue barriers uh, on the street in Shanghai and a couple of other cities uh, to try to make it harder for people to walk into the street. They've taken away street signs because they think, I think this is a mistake, actually, on the part of the state. It looks silly that they remove the street signs because they think that people will use those either to find where the protest is uh, or to put them in videos or photos that then spread online that indicate sort of where this is happening. Um, my perception is that that's not that important, really, and it just makes the state look a bit silly to have the construction workers removing the street signs. But they did, they did that. Uh, they've also put lots of police, both plainclothes and uniform uh, police, around areas where protests have happened 
in multiple cities, uh, and they've just been stopping people to ask a couple of quick questions, to look at what kind of photos or messages they have on their phones, um, to check their ID, uh, to take a photo of them in some cases, uh, just to see sort of what people are doing uh, in a way that many people would find perhaps a little bit intimidating and certainly would take as a message that they're being watched uh, and that something might happen if they were to protest. And then the most uh, sort of proactive measure that the state has taken so far that I've seen has been to begin tracing and then calling people. So begin tracking down people who engaged in protests and then calling them on the phone to tell them, oh, we're aware you were at this protest. Why did you go there? What were you doing? Are you going to go back? Maybe you shouldn't go back. Uh, and in some cases, even calling relatives of people. You know, so, so if young people went to the protest, they might call their parents, mm -hmm. even if their parents don't live in the same city, uh, and say, hey, your son, your daughter, they were at the protest. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of that? Can you talk to them? Um, maybe that's not such a good idea. Uh, you know, we might have to come and visit you if your kids keep going to the protest. And, and so the, these kind of indications uh, from the authorities seem to have you know, struck some fear into enough people that at least for right now, more people are having second thoughts about continuing to protest. And I think if, if we see the protests flare up again or begin to spiral, we'll see that repressive response turn up another notch. So that's that's kind of stayed the momentum. At the same time, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, they've also ramped up um, a response on COVID, haven't they? Or they, they start, they're, they're starting to look again at the vaccination. At, at, it, I mean, it, how much of that is is a change? Not much has changed, actually. So one thing that the Chinese government emphasizes again and again when foreign media correspondents or critics say, oh, zero COVID is this monolithic and terrible thing, they always respond by saying, it's not just zero COVID, it's dynamic zero COVID. And there are 25 or 30 different policy measures that can be deployed in different ways and to different degrees in different places and at different times. And that that's actually not a lie. That is true uh, that that's going on. And so we see at least you know four or five versions of lockdown that are in place in different parts of China, even street to street, different rules in place uh, in large cities. Uh, and so that means there's a lot of room to tweak things, right? So we see some situations in which you really cannot leave your apartment um, and then others where you're free to come and go as you want, uh, but most shops and businesses are closed, schools are closed, and you're going to have to test uh, at these PCR test facilities every day or every couple of days. And even some others where there, there's not testing requirement uh, as as strictly enforced. So, you know, there's a lot of room and a large range along this continuum where the state can move. And they're moving in little bits in some parts of the country rather than wholesale across all of the country. There's, there isn't one national lockdown policy that can be switched on, switched off uh, in a kind of dichotomous way. It's actually much more differentiated locally and in these various gradations. The other thing that has happened uh, since about the 30th of November, uh, which I think is a ra rather hopeful sign, is that they've started, it seems, 
uh, to push elderly people a little bit harder to get vaccinated. Uh, because one of the challenges that China has, if they are ever to lift lockdowns, is that a significant proportion of elderly people have not been vaccinated at all. And supposedly, this is because many are afraid of interactions uh, with the vaccine with long-term health conditions uh, like diabetes or high blood pressure, um, things like this, that you know, at least this is what I've heard as, as kind of excuses for not getting vaccinated. Honestly, I don't understand why um, and why elderly people wouldn't take it. Um, well, so Bill, I'm sorry, because I keep hearing this and people don't want to get vaccinated. I'm thinking this is, on the one hand, we're being told this is, you know, the most extraordinarily um, comprehensive system of state surveillance. Mm. People, th there is essentially a contract between the party and the person that the person accepts the party is in charge. And then on the other hand, we're saying, well, um, all the old people don't want to get vaccinated. That that doesn't make sense to the outsider like me who says, but surely the state can just make them be vaccinated, can't they? For whatever reason, the Chinese state has declined to reach for the most coercive tools in its toolbox mm. uh, when dealing with this population over this issue. Mm. Um, what I think is significant is that early on, when the vaccine drive first started, if we think about how vaccines were deployed in the UK, there was a very clear system of tiers uh, or groups uh, who should get the vaccine first with the highest priority and then moving all the way down. I think there were six or seven different groups, right? Um, and the purpose of the vaccine drive at the beginning uh, was very clearly to prevent people from dying, mm. to get people vaccinated in the priority order of what their risk of dying from COVID would be if they were to get infected. And so the idea, at least, was to prioritize you know, elderly people, people in care homes, people with long-term health conditions, uh, and then slowly work down. And of course, you know, people in the lowest risk categories didn't get vaccinated for a very long time. And many, many of them got infected with COVID. If I think about you know, our students um, or, or teenagers and younger children, many of them you know, only got vaccinated uh, a year later uh, from when the vaccine drive started. Um, and in fact, vaccination rates in this country are lowest among young people, whereas most elderly people here have long since been vaccinated, boosted, etc. In China, the vaccines were deployed at the beginning not to prevent death, but to prevent spread, right? because they had already essentially eliminated the outbreak. There was almost no COVID was spreading in China at that time. What they decided to do is use the vaccines in a different priority order to try to get those people vaccinated first who would be more likely to spread the virus if they got infected. And so they actually started with younger people and essential workers and then worked their way up slowly to people who are much less likely to have social interactions, in other words, elderly people. And so elderly people only have been reached much later in the vaccine drive didn't seem to view it as a priority. The state didn't really care as much about making sure they all got vaccinated. Um, they weren't pushed or coerced to do it. And then the other issue now is that almost no one, uh, well, not, not almost no one, but a much smaller percentage of people have been boosted uh, with, with the vaccine. The vaccine is less effective at preventing infection or severe illness than vaccines that have been deployed elsewhere in the world. 
And the Chinese vaccines have not yet been updated, as far as I know, to be you know, bivalent or multivalent. They could be, because right? remember, they're built on the same technology as, as a flu vaccine. It would not be hard to update it with the whole virus uh, system for Omicron or for other variants. Um, I'm sure that they're working on that. I'm sure that will be deployed uh, along with these new inhaled vaccines that are, are uh, being rolled out in China uh, to go alongside the injectable ones that supposedly are more effective as well. So I, I, I don't think they're just not doing it, but it's, it's coming rather late. The reason I think they're actually moving to get old people vaccinated right now, though, isn't directly because of the protests, but rather because if you can start at the beginning of December, sort of mechanistically at this date, um, you can go through the whole series of doses and then have a few weeks on the other side uh, to be fully vaccinated and, and immunized in time for Chinese New Year on the 22nd of January. Uh, and so you can have your children come and visit and not die uh, as a result of the visit, I think, is the way it's being pitched. Um, and now they're starting to offer people cash incentives uh, and other sort of goodies if they agree to get vaccinated. So you can get you know, two cans of cooking oil uh, for free, or you can get a small cash payment, um, or you could get uh, a voucher uh, for other grocery shopping, or for uh, you, know, you get a bag of rice, you get a... Uh, you know, a, a, a voucher to go to the butcher shop, you know, something like, it's very often food, it seems. Um, I think what might even be more useful would be medicine, right? If you had a voucher for the pharmacy, um, that might induce people with chronic health issues, especially to turn up and get vaccinated because pharmacy uh, expenses are, are often a big part of their monthly bills um, for, for elderly people in China. Cause, it's uh, so interesting, Bill, because you, what you've just described is is almost exactly the scenario that we had in the UK and in the US where people who don't want vaccines are then, you know, various incentivized yes. schemes with greater or lesser degrees of success, depending on... Well, and, and even make sure you get boosted so that you can be safe at Christmas when you gather to all of that yeah. last year that, the that we heard. Yeah. Okay, Bill, we've talked uh, for so long that we're going to run out of time. So we're going to have to wrap it up. I hope that... Um, I hope that's been helpful for our listeners in terms of explaining what's happening now. I think, Bill, the, the critical point that you keep making is um, everything could change in either direction on a daily basis. But um, but I think that your analysis so far has been consistent throughout and has generally tracked what's happening. I think the point that you made that protests happen in China all the time, and protests happen everywhere all the time, yeah. don't they? So you can see that everybody focuses on protests in China when we've had, obviously, protests in America, protests in Britain, protests yeah. across Europe. So so there's a risk that we get kind of excited about a change which actually is simply just the normal functioning of a of a state. Um we'll keep watching it. We'll um we'll hear back from you, I'm sure. There, oh we've got one more thing. Yep. There there is sort of one general point uh, about sort of thinking around about protests around lockdown times. Mm -hmm. Um which I think social movement scholars will be looking at in the years ahead, which is, is there something about lockdown that provokes mobilization? Um, because we haven't experienced these kinds of lockdowns much before, and certainly not across so many countries at roughly the same time. And so, in other words, are the protests we've seen in China this past week or so 
analogous in some ways to the protests that began in America in May of 2020 after the death of George Floyd uh, or other movements that sprung up in the UK or Europe uh, around that same time and later, in part, at least in reaction to lockdown conditions. I don't know. I don't think the issues are directly related, but the context may matter and may matter in ways that the field of study of sort of social movements and contentious politics should perhaps take note of. I'm going to end with a sweeping and possibly not very accurate historical parallel, but I always remember being taught about the revolutions in Europe in 1848. Uh, the narrative was that they they didn't come out of nowhere spontaneously in, in 1848, but they came as a result of um, years, a few years of hardship immediately preceding, including poor harvests and famine. And actually, the, you get the you get the protests when people's circumstances start to improve slightly um, for whatever reason, and then and then the, the sort of grievance and constraint and all the rest of it finds its form. So so it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at the hardest point. It happens when the pressure comes off a little bit. Mm. So it will be really interesting, as you say, uh, twenty years time when we're all studying ourselves, what we conclude. Thank you, Bill. Thank you Thank very you. much. Um, we'll speak to you again soon. Definitely. Thank you very much. 